Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Andrew Hofer, who has written The Power of Patristic Preaching with Catholic University Press. Um, and this book basically goes through lots of different uh, patristic pe preachers, um, including um, Augustine, Origen, Ephraim the Syrian, uh, Gregory, Nazianzen. There are lots of different figures in the work, John Chrysostom. Um, and I decided to talk with Dr. Hofer about some of the people that we have spent less time in this podcast. So we won't discuss Augustine very much, uh, as many of you uh, no, I talk about Augustine quite a bit, so we talk a lot about Origen and a little about Ephraim the Syrian, um, but but talk about some other uh, preachers um, from the ancient world that we've spent less time on. Um, and so I appreciate Catholic University Press with supplying me a copy of that book. Um, also, please do check out our Patreon. Uh, that's patreon.com slash A-H-O-C-T. Um, we will be releasing some stuff there, some other teaching that I've done, some conversations with Tom and Trevor, um, and, and other things. So please do, uh, support us on Patreon. Um, so, uh, we also will have, uh, regular guests on the podcast. Um, I'll be interviewing, um, Jacob Wright on why the Bible began, um, as well as, um, Ty Monroe, who wrote a book called uh, wrote a book on Augustine with Catholic U, and so we'll be discussing that as well. Um, but without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Hofer, um, and thank you for listening. All right, so this morning on a history of Christian theology, uh, I have Father Andrew, Father Andrew Hofer, um, and Father Hofer has written, or Father Andrew, excuse me, has written the power of patristic preaching, the word in our flesh, uh, and that is with Catholic University Press, and we appreciate them uh, sending me a copy so I can have a look at this uh, great work. Uh, so thank you for uh, for coming on, Father Andrew. Thank you very much, Chad. It's an honor to be with you. Um, and so as the title implies, uh, this book is a study of um, uh, several patristic authors um, and uh, their kind of uh, – in and Father Hofer goes through and talks uh, a little bit about uh, some, one specific kind of uh, virtue or idea that each one of these uh, theologians uh, sort of brings to the table in their preaching. Um, but um, – you also try to uh, frame it around these ideas of incarnation, deification, and proclamation. So uh, maybe you could just um, give us a quick kind of uh, thesis. Uh, what is the the main uh, main idea uh, that you main argument that you're trying to get across in this book? Thank you. So the title again is the power of patristic preaching, and the subtitle is the word in our flesh. And what I want to get across is that these holy preachers from the early church experienced the mystery of the Trinity of God, and that the Father sent his own Son, who is the eternal Word. And that Word was made flesh. And Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, is our Savior. He suffered, died, and rose for us. He is unique. And in his uniqueness, he calls us to be in him. Mm. And by his Holy Spirit, we are to be in him and he in us. And so that these holy preachers of the early church show forth something in the mystery of the Trinity for our salvation. And I thought it'd be handy to have these three words of incarnation, deification, and proclamation to, uh, to have a sort of stream that runs through the, the whole book. Yeah. 
Yeah, that and that's such an important emphasis. I, you know, it's interesting. We often think about the word "made flesh" or the word uh, "become flesh," but you have the word in our flesh. So you're really uh, hammering home this uh, the, our 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 union, right? Our mystical connection to uh, God, um, which which I thought was a very um, important uh, emphasis that uh, maybe I hadn't. Um, you know, it took me a minute in our flesh. Okay, what? Why is he trying to say our flesh? But I really enjoyed that that uh, element uh, of uh, of your argument. Thank you. St. Augustine makes the distinction that there is the one word made flesh, Mm -hmm. and that the prophets and the holy ones have the word in their flesh. Mm. And this isn't unique to Augustine. Many fathers of the church would differentiate Jesus from the saints by that principle, that the word comes to us, but only that one who is Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. And then for us to see, oh, okay, uh, that we're to have God within us. We are to be his temple. And it's precisely in that mystical union that we are to be Christ's own body here upon the earth. Mm. And and so you try to uh, bring forth that main idea through incarnation, which is probably a more a fairly familiar term to a lot of my uh, listeners. But that is uh, Christ coming to us. Uh, but maybe you could speak a little bit about deification. Um, I you know I have uh, talked uh, about that a little on the podcast. Uh, we did have Father McConey on uh, qu- uh, quite a ways back. Uh, talking a little bit about deification in Augustine, but that's not often uh, understood or recognized that deification is an idea that's in the Latin West as well as kind of the Greek East. So maybe uh, could you give us a little bit of uh, background? And I think actually we were on a panel uh, at, yeah. at, at NAPS on deification itself. So, uh, but yeah, can you give us a little bit about how that kind of works uh, for for you in this in this book and as well for the the Church Fathers? Great. Thank you. So the word deification goes back to a Latin word deificatio, and that ending of it means that it's being made. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that we are made to be, uh, and then you have the dei, so to be made to be like God, uh, God with a little g, uh, like uh, to be made partakers of the divine nature, to go back to Second Peter 1, verse 4. There are all sorts of ways of doing this. In John chapter 10, Jesus cites Psalm 82, so Psalm 81, 82, I say you are gods, Mm -hmm. and he says that scripture cannot be set aside. And he makes an a fortiori argument where it says, if this this is true, how much more uh, is it true that he uh, is the son of God? Mm -hmm. And, And that's where that repeatedly in early Christianity in all sorts of ways, You have kinds of theologies of deification, and these kinds of theologies of deifications go through different um, developments through the centuries. So one volume that I highly recommend is the Oxford Handbook of Deification. Paul Gavrilik, Matthew Levering, and I were the co-editors, and it's now in press. So it will have 44 chapters. Oh, wow. uh, to study deification in its sources, in principal moments within the history of Christian theology, and then also within systematic connections. Mm. And, and you have uh, all sorts of people contributing to it, so uh, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestants. And I think whatever perspective you have, you will be challenged by the volume because you have 44 chapters 
arguing about deification in particular ways. And it would be very fascinating, I think, for lots of readers. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And, and did you say that is in press? I haven't seen yeah, – I haven't so, seen a – okay. So yeah. uh, as uh, it's it's now uh, – we've delivered everything over to Oxford University Press. So it will be a while before it actually comes out. But oh, okay. It, but it is assured that it, uh, to be published, and it's now with them. So awesome. so, so yes, it will happen. And it's just really exciting. My own chapter is on Cyril of Alexandria. Okay. So I did not choose Cyril to be one of the chapters in this book, but I did the essay on Cyril there for the Oxford Handbook of Deification. Okay. Well, uh, and that that's very uh, very helpful. There's a, you know it's kind of interesting that has become a, a much more um, widely discussed topic, uh, deification. Um, so um, I'm sure that'll be uh, quite useful. And there's some, some good names in there, as you say, some from historical like yourself, and then maybe more systematic. So uh, I'll be looking out uh, for that. Um, well, and you mentioned you did not choose Cyril for your book here on the power of patristic preaching. Um, and so how did you uh, go about deciding which figures you thought were going to be the most helpful for, for this volume? Well, it, it was a difficult decision in some ways that, uh, that I needed to have a book that would have uh, some fathers featured, but I can't, you know, nobody has a complete list of fathers of the church. And... And I had done some studies on origin, particularly his homilies on Leviticus and St. Ephraim the Syrian. And then I did some other studies on, I did a book on Gregory of Nazianzus, so Christ and the Life and Teaching of Gregory of Nazianzus. And then I did studies on Leo the Great and Gregory the Great. And I had done a study on John Chrysostom and and so anyway, I, I was just thinking about the studies I had done and how I love all these early preachers. And then I thought, well, what if I put these together and then, uh, and then am I missing people? Okay. Mm -hmm. So in my introduction to the book, I apologize that I don't have chapters dedicated to Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, so those two Cappadocian brothers. And I don't have chapters dedicated to Ambrose of Milan and Peter Chrysologus, so mm -hmm. those preachers of Italy, because those four would really uh, be Im important for patristic preaching in our studies, but you just can't do everything. Right. And so, so I chose the seven I did based upon my own interests, and then also that I thought that they, that they came together well. Mm. Excellent, excellent. And so uh, you you said that uh, many of these that you've done uh, before, and I would uh, well, and and just real quick, I would uh, encourage listeners. I think I've had uh, scholars come on to talk about many of these guys, so we're not going to be able to spend time with every single one of these figures. It's uh, nearly a four hundred page book, so there's quite a bit to cover. Uh, but we, we you know we've talked with Jeff Wicks about Ephraim the Syrian. We've talked with. Um, uh, Oh, uh, last name is Miller, and now I, I just blanked on her first name. Uh, she wrote a book on John Chrysostom with uh, Ivy Press. Um, so you know, and a lot of Augustine. So a lot of these guys uh, that we have we've talked about before. Um, so we're going to kind of uh, narrow in on a few of the other theologians that um, and and uh, patristic sources that uh, that we haven't really covered as much in the po in in this podcast. 
but it was there any uh, are there any one of these um, uh, church fathers that you find to be kind of the best of the best? All of them? Do you, mm-hmm. if you had to pick one, could you pick oh. one of them uh, as your as the one? Like if anybody, if someone was going to go out to read a sermon uh, from one of the people in your book, you'd say you got to start. You got to do mm-hmm. this one first. Well, uh, with that part of the question, I would go to what the person is most interested in. Uh-huh. So many Westerners are much more interested in Augustine of Hippo than Gregor Nazianzus. Uh-huh. From my own perspective, I love to pair the two of them. Mm. So, so that's where uh, I, uh, I have a special love and preference for Gregor Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo. Okay. And why, why do you think they pair so well together? Just their time for time in history is roughly similar. Is there something about the, like the way that they work together that you think, uh, sort of matches well? Well, both of them are tops in their respective influences in East and West. Mm. So in the West, we are very familiar with Augustine of Hippo. So he has just been extraordinarily influential in the West. If you had to name one father in the East of comparable authority, at least in uh, the Byzantine area, era, that would be Gregory Nazianzus. So Gregory okay. is the theologian. Mm-hmm. He was the most frequently cited ecclesiastical authority after the Bible throughout Byzantine history. Okay. And then uh, how both of them are orators. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, both of them were trained uh, in the rhetorical arts uh, they were extremely intelligent uh, with um, a very learned philosophical uh, background and use. Uh, they're very engaging. They're also very, auto, what we call today, autobiographical. Mm-hmm. So of all of Augustine's works, I think the Confessions would be the most popular. And, it, and, and people can identify themselves with Augustine in his own praying to God through the Confessions well, Gregor Nazianzus wrote lots of poetry, mm-hmm. and 99 poems were classified as on himself. Mm. And he says in one of his orations, I'm the kind of person who, uh, who relates everything to himself. Mm. And he did. So it's interesting that, that Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine, who are such great theologians, are the ones who talk most about themselves. Hmm. So that they uh, they show us something about talking about one's own life in the presence of God, and then uh, something about the mystery of God Himself. Yeah, yeah, and and whenever I I teach confessions, uh, you know, at least once a year, probably uh, to an intro to theology class, and and this definitely the the one of the reasons that I use it is because if you have that personal narrative, there's something about it that's just easier uh, to connect to. Um, if you if you are you know uh, like I said I usually do it for intro students so students who maybe don't have quite the familiarity with all of these uh, figures and and their respective teaching and that sort of thing um, there is something about a personal story uh, that that really um, makes it a lot easier to connect yes um, so uh, before we kind of take a, a turn through some of these uh, uh, patristic authors I did want to ask this uh, kind of uh, uh, 
shifting gears question, something a little bit different. So I ask most of my guests, what is one thing that you once thought was true and now think is false or, or vice versa? And I usually open it up uh, for the for the the, the guest uh, to say something either that they learned during the research for the book um, or it can be something just more broadly about their own kind of uh, spiritual and, uh, and theological journey. It's a difficult question. One thing I think of is origins exegesis. Mm. So uh, for lots of people, they've heard something about origin uh, in his reading of the Bible and that he is so allegorical, it's arbitrary, it's crazy. And the more I read origin, the more I love him. Mm. And the more I see that he knows the Bible better than just about anybody, mm-hmm. that he really knows the Bible back and forth, and he makes connections that I think, wow, I'd never make that connection. And then he continues, and it's like, oh, I think it's true. Mm-hmm. And then how he is completely dependent upon the Spirit, so that the Holy Spirit is uh, removing the veil and is allowing us then to see something of the word himself present in sacred scripture Mm -hmm. and that this is saving for us so i would say that in my studies one thing where i i was influenced by people who would ridicule origin and then the more i read him more and more and more reading him i just think yes well he he actually has something, and it's beautiful, and uh, and that I developed a very great respect for him. Yeah. Well, and and that was the the next question was going to go right to um, origin. So you talked a little bit about um, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory the theologian, as the most cited figure. Uh, in sort of Byzantine or, or Greek uh, uh, theology, so. But oftentimes, uh, you know, there's been a revival of interest in Origen, and sometimes he seems to lurk beneath the surface uh, for for a lot of uh, theologians, and even uh, and even in his reception in the West, uh, you know, Augustine is a little. Um, uh, tepid um, in his response to um, Origen doesn't always uh, agree with him. Uh, so, could you say something just a little bit about um, uh, how Christians should receive uh, the teachings of this kind of complicated figure? Um, he is, you know, one one of the guys, the only one in here who's not called a saint. But yes, and then for his chapter, I feature holiness. Mm, right. So, uh, <laughs> so as a Catholic, I am particularly devoted to Thomas Aquinas as a saint, and the Catholic Church calls Thomas Aquinas the common doctor. So if you ask me a theological question, uh, I think, oh, okay, so does does St. Thomas say something about this? Mm -hmm. And then uh, I'm a Dominican friar, so I belong to the same order. It's called the Order of Preachers within the Catholic Church as Thomas Aquinas. And then if you go back to Thomas's writings in the 13th century, one thing that you'll find is Origen's presence. Mm. Thomas cites Origen by far more than any other scholastic in the 13th century. Origen's name appears about 1,090 times in wow. Thomas Aquinas's writings. And that there are various things done uh, by Origen 
that were translated into Latin for Thomas to be able to read, but that we don't have any other evidence for for centuries. Mm. So Thomas must have asked somebody to translate or that he had access to origin in some Latin texts that nobody else did. And mm. it wasn't until, say, uh, after the Italian Renaissance uh, classics movement that then you had more origin present in Latin. Mm. So it was Rufinus and Jerome uh, around the year 400 that preserved so much origin because the Greek tradition actually rejected a lot of origin and you find different originist controversies. So mm-hmm. I'd like to go back to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century and say, don't ignore origin. Mm-hmm. And for Thomas, uh, origin has some very critical errors so that there are certain things about the son's subordination uh, to the father or some things about the uh, universal restoration of all things um, uh, or some things uh, uh, about the body, uh, that there are various things uh, about the devil uh, that Thomas rejects and, uh, and that they need to be identified. Mm-hmm. But repeatedly, Thomas relies upon Origen's exegesis and that he, uh, that he sees that Origen has insight into the Bible that should not be ignored. Mm-hmm. So that's where to, be, uh, to see that uh, Origen does have some errors, okay, uh, but he really tried, and on his on first principles, he articulates at the beginning the rule of faith about mm-hmm. what all Christians need to agree upon, and he says that there are some certain open questions, and he really wants to be faithful to the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's trying hard, and he was persecuted. Uh, that we don't know exactly when he died, either two fifty three or two fifty four, but it, he had written an exhortation of martyrdom. And apparently his persecutors knew that he wanted to be martyred. And so they were told that that those that were actually uh, torturing him were told, make sure you don't kill him. (laughs) So so they didn't kill him, but they basically uh, very much hurt him. And then he died sometime after from those uh, wounds of persecution. So Origen is just a remarkable, remarkable figure who was so devoted to God, uh, to God's holy word. And I, mm. and I wanted, and because of his influence, that uh, because of who he is and his great influence, I thought he needs to have the first chapter. Yeah. Well, and, and as you say, uh, you know, aside from some of the things that, uh, that Thomas and others have pointed out, there's so much that's good. And even it's sort of surprising in a way, the first preacher, uh, preach the, the book that you work through is Leviticus. Um, and you know, might not be the go-to book for most modern Christians, uh, like, oh, what, what's going to be the most, uh, spiritually nourishing, uh, book, you know, many of like Augustine is reading Paul and Romans when he converts and a lot of us you know like to read the new testament but but you uh helpfully uh show how um origin calls us to holiness in a book like leviticus even in a book that might uh, be pretty uh difficult and obscure but he's able to find some deep um, and rich truths uh, within right. that that's right because origin has this understanding that the word of god is nourishing and that you need to pay attention to what your audience is capable of. 
Uh-huh. So that structure of nourishment through milk, vegetables, and strong meat. Mm-hmm. You don't get strong meat to babies. Uh-huh. And Leviticus is strong meat. And Leviticus's whole message is holiness. So that's where uh, that the end is the same. And that Origen is preaching this to his people. Uh, the, those sermons are preserved in a translation from Rufinus, so made around the year 400 in Latin. And, and I thought that it would be good for us to begin there. And then the second half of that chapter is devoted to the recently discovered mm. Greek homilies on the Psalms. So in Munich some years ago, there was a manuscript discovered where people knew that Origen had preached on the Psalms and we had certain Latin translations, uh, but this uh, showed that we have much more of Origen's preachings on the Psalm, on the Psalms, and that this was uh, delivered shortly before his death. Okay, mm-hmm. so this may very well be the last work by Origen. And it's the most exciting patristic discovery of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, and I think uh, those is um, uh, tr- was it Heine? Uh, who is there? They tr- Trig. Who so just Joseph some- Trig, Trig did the translation yeah. mm-hmm. of the of the critical edition that was led up by Lorenzo Peroni. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's excellent. So to bring those uh, together and to bring those out in, in an analysis um, is is very helpful. Um, well, uh, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit in time. So Origen, as you say, third century, uh, he's, uh, you know, um, living through persecution. His father was martyred, you know, has this really difficult life uh, that he leads. And, and now I kind of want to jump forward in time uh, to Leo the Great. Uh, just as again, as I say, we're not going to be able to cover everyone for this podcast, uh, but maybe uh, tell us a little bit about Leo the Great. Um, and one of the surprising things uh, that or that people might find surprising about patristic preaching is just the centrality of almsgiving. Um, and, and that is, you know, giving to the poor. Um, when we think about uh, preaching today, um, I, you know, I guess I don't uh, it probably depends on what context you're in. But I don't hear very many sermons about giving to the poor. Uh, but that was uh, really important to Leo. But it was, and, and of course to to many others. Uh, Be- we mentioned Basil and uh, Augustine and others also preached about this. But it was uh, very significant for for Leo. That's right. And perhaps Leo is best known today with his Christological doctrine. So he was Pope in Rome at the same time as the Council of Chalcedon. So the Council of Chalcedon, the Fourth Ecumenical Council, was in the year 451. And Leo was very concerned, especially about defending the Catholic faith in Jesus against Eutychianism. Uh, So he has a a two-nature Christology. So Jesus Christ is one person, but that one person has two natures, human and divine. And so... Uh, People who study Leo often go back to his tome to Flavian. So Flavian was the Bishop of Constantinople that Leo wanted to support uh, because Eutyches there in Constantinople was revolting against Flavian. And uh, and so of all things, perhaps people study his Epistle 28 to Flavian, which was read out at the Council of Chalcedon. But if you go back to Leo's 97 sermons, uh, what... And, and then perhaps the second most influential thing or second uh, thing that people study Leo for is the liturgy. 
so the various liturgical feasts and the sacramental theology there. But uh, within all of that, Leo has this great emphasis on almsgiving. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is popular among the fathers. John Chrysostom is particularly outstanding mm-hmm. in his preaching on almsgiving. But I wanted to show how Leo is this. And Bernard Green's book on Leo really says that uh, per sermon, Leo has uh, the most on almsgiving. Mm. And Richard Finn's work on almsgiving in the late Roman Empire uh, brings this out, and various studies have done this. So I wanted really to focus on this. And within the structure of the book, uh, there's a a sort of movement of the virtues. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, so after Origin on Holiness and Ephraim on Humility, I go to Gregor Nazianzus on Purification and Faith, So and then John Chrysostom on the Hope of Salvation, Augustine of Hippo on Love, well then Leo the Great, Love of the Poor and the Weak. Mm. So Love of the Poor and the Weak. And one of my favorite lines from, Augustine, from Leo's preaching is, no one should look down upon the nature that the Creator himself has assumed. And so he wants to say that uh, that everybody, uh, every human being has this inestimable dignity because not only because we're made to the image of God, but that the eternal son of God has taken upon himself our nature. And Mm -hmm. so every human being has that nature. Okay, Uh, that we have this bond with the word of God, because the word of God has taken upon himself our human nature. So Mm -hmm. Leo then says how we are to shiver with those who are cold, Mm -hmm. uh, to, um, to, that we are to be identified, uh, because God has identified himself with the lowliest, uh, with the weakest. And so that is how we can find our salvation, to be with the lowly and the weak. Yeah, well, and and I liked how you uh, framed the, you know, sort of a lot of people will talk about being made in the image of God um, and sort of talk about dignity with that. But but really this assuming uh, our weakness uh, as Christ, as the word assumed our weakness, uh, that sort of. Uh, even more kind of exemplifies that the dignity um, of our nature and for every single one of us, right? So for those, the you know, so I think one of the tricky things that you try to uh, deal with within the book is how, uh, you know, how he encourages almsgiving, but he, he wants to, um, as much as, as much, part of that almsgiving um, is that in a way we're giving to Christ through the poor, but you also want to hold up the dignity even of the poor. Yes, that's right. Yeah, there's one influential scholar who, asks uh, if if the poor really are persons for Leo, and she Mm -hmm. replies, no. Mm. And so then I I quote her, and she's done so much good work on Leo in other respects that I want to be respectful to her argument. But I have to say in my conclusion, as I go through the chapter, is that precisely in seeing Leo considering Christ's presence in the poor, that that's not dehumanizing to the poor. It mm-hmm. doesn't depersonalize them. Uh, he's not a social monophysite where there's <laughs> simply this, um, where, where the poor are so much Jesus that they have no personal identity. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that Leo just, he loves to talk about, uh, about um, important persons in their identification. Okay, so 
So like he himself will, will consider uh, himself in some way as Peter, mm-hmm. the apostle Peter, because he's Bishop of Rome. Or, or he gives the example of how Mary Magdalene represents the church. Uh, well, the poor especially give us the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and so then for us to see that we can, we can draw close to Christ by being with his poor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's that's very powerful, um, and and I think an important uh, question um, for for us and for how and you know you can see how this has a direct uh, application uh, for us today, right? As we think about how do we um, uh, uh, respect the dignity of of the poor who are still with us, as Christ uh, says in the Gospels. Um, well, and the last kind of theologian I wanted to ask you to touch on for us uh, for the podcast is Gregory the Great. So the last one um, in this uh, uh, book, you move from kind of the the um, Christ accepting our weakness, uh, or well, excuse me, I'm sorry for for the alms giving um, to uh, talking about how Christ uh, accepts our weakness in uh, Gregory the Great. So um, could you? Uh, could you kind of give us a little bit of background uh, about Gregory the Great? Um, as again, he's not one that we've talked about too much um, on the podcast. Um, and then, uh, why is it important that uh, the word comes to our flesh? Okay, so Gregory the Great is the first monk to become Pope of Rome, and he, uh, uh, as a deacon in Rome, had been sent to Constantinople. And he was the papal legate in Constantinople, but then came back to his abbey of St. Andrews there in Rome, and then became pope in the year 590 after a terrible plague in Rome, a plague that had killed the previous pope. And Gregory the Great was very conscious of his own weakness and of uh, just human frailty. So this is a theme that you find throughout his writings, that to be weak, to be human, is to be weak. And so I go from the second to last chapter of Leo the Great on loving the poor, uh, uh, love for the poor and the weak, to accepting our own weakness. So one of Gregory's most important works is called The Book of Pastoral Rule, and it's in Mm -hmm. four books. And he wrote this soon after becoming pope in September of 590. And the very last book of the four books is very short, that after the preacher lives and teaches he should return in prayer and know that he's just a man uh, Mm. before the almighty god Mm -hmm. and how how that uh no matter how deified the the preacher is uh that that the preacher is just a man and in fact Mm. it's because of the incarnation Um, though he was rich he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich so second corinthians um, that that Gregory then had this existential awareness of his own weakness and how God meets us precisely in our weakness. He said, this is the meaning of the incarnation. You know, can you accept your own weakness? It's one thing for you to, to go out and to help the poor and the weak, but then at the end of the day, can you accept that you yourself are very weak, that you are very dependent, very dependent upon God? Uh, and that you just put everything out to him. Yeah. 
Well, uh, that and and that's uh, that's very helpful as each one of these um, theologians uh, uh, are. Um, so I thought we'd uh, end maybe with kind of a. Uh, a different question, a little bit more uh, uh, kind of almost application or something. But I'm just curious, as uh, as one who's from the order of preachers, um, ha- have these uh, have reading and studying these aged authors have they changed your uh, preaching at all? Uh, that's a great question. So one of the things I try to emphasize in the book is that the preaching is not just simply a matter of talking. But it's a matter of living. Mm-hmm. So to be a preacher is to have a life conformed to the word. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's uh, a great challenge for me to, to respond to God's graciousness. Uh, you know, God is good and I am not. Mm-hmm. And so then to see that uh, by being with the fathers, uh, you know, by, by, asking for, you know, by reading them, uh, hearing their preaching, by asking for the intercession, uh, I want to be changed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want, uh, to be more and more in Christ. I want more and more to receive his grace and have a life transformed. Um, and then to be able to communicate that to others in humility one thing that I wish preachers would do more of, and sometimes I try to do it, uh, but I don't do it as well as I should, uh, is to ask questions when preaching. Mm. So uh, rhetorically, uh, what is perhaps the best way to get someone to think? Mm-hmm. To ask a question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and this is where uh, I'm afraid that sometimes we may go to church and we're really not thinking about what we're praying, what we're reading, what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. And a preacher needs to get people to think mm-hmm. and and to think in particular ways and to think in ways that are not our ways. You know, God mm-hmm. says, my ways are not your ways. Mm-hmm. And so the, a preacher is to challenge others to uh, repent and to believe in the gospel. And, and we can be surprised by how many things that are within our hearts that are really resistant to the the truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So this is where, uh, for me, to be able to uh, uh, to uh, convert more and more each day, uh, to receive God's grace, uh, to be more devoted to the sacraments, and then to be able to communicate that from the pulpit. You know, mm. to be able to uh, to point people to Jesus. Uh, his presence, his love. Yeah, well, and and that's about as good a place as any to end, right? It's a great uh, challenge uh, from a preacher uh, and from someone who has studied uh, the great preachers of the church. Uh, So I just want to say thank you to uh, Father Andrew uh, for coming on the podcast um, and for providing us with this excellent resource. Uh, So the book's The Power of Patristic Preaching, The Word in Our Flesh with Catholic University Press. And uh, and I'll just reiterate that it is – you know, there's so much richness in the book, way more than we can cover in a short 30 minutes. So I hope uh, this will uh, whet the appetite uh, for um, uh, the the great uh, learning that that is uh, within the book. So thank you, Father Andrew. Thank you very much, Chad. You and your listeners have my prayers. All right. Thank you.